Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, this is Andrew Olson, host of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, and I'm really excited this afternoon to be sitting down with my good friend, Larry Johnson. Larry is the founder of the Eight Principles of Sustainable Fundraising and also the author of a book by the same title. Larry, welcome to the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Super excited to have you here. I, I, I'm really eager for our audience to, to hear more about the Eight Principles uh, because it's so, I think, dramatically different from the way that a lot of fundraisers think about philanthropy. And, and I, the first thing I want to do is just to ask you to talk a little bit about how uh, the Eight Principles methodology and thinking is different from most of the other uh, sort of fundraising training programs that are on the market. Well, you know, I've, I've been in the business about 30 years, Andrew, and from working with one of the major consulting firms early on to serving in higher education for well, well over a decade. And, you know, over time, you know, I've come to the understanding that being effective in fundraising is about 90% what you're thinking or how you're thinking and 10% of what you're actually doing. And if you look at all the high-performing programs, and when I say a high-performing program, what I mean is a program that raises money every year and more money than the last year. That's what I call that. This is something, this is, you'll see this as a characteristic of that, of that program. So, you know, what I did when I wrote the book, The Eight Principles, was come together with these eight natural laws that govern all philanthropy. They're all, they're all based on thinking. They're all based on the way you look at the problem. And once you know what those are, then it's far easier to choose a method or a set of methods that work for your organization. You know, most people are in the process mode. They choose their methods because, oh, well, it worked over there. Well, it might not work at your organization. Organizations are different. They have different profiles. They have different constituency bases. But the principles are applicable across the board. And I've seen this. And so I wanted to provide an opportunity for people to see, all right, here are the principles. And if you really learn those, and you know, if you read them and go, oh yeah, that sounds easy. Well, reading them and saying nodding acceptance is not the same thing as internalizing them. And so that's what led me to build this training platform that I've done over the past years is to provide nonprofits with that understanding in a sophisticated but very simple way that would be applicable to anyone from a board chair to a board member to an executive to a volunteer, anyone really. And, and that's what I've done. You know, what I like about this and the program that you've built is it's not just for professional fundraisers. In fact, it's, it's largely designed to, to be digestible and applicable by the layperson who, who might be on a board or, or volunteering on a campaign committee or something like that, which I think is really different. And the other thing that I think is really exciting is I didn't hear you say anything about the, you know, five newest tips to do something or the, you know, the two shiny objects that we should be thinking about for, for 2020 and things like that. It's, you're, you're really distilling what sound like core principles that are consistent regardless of the type of organization or the, the shape or size of, a, of an initiative that go well beyond simple tricks and tactics. Am I right? Yes. And I want to respond to one thing you said. There are plenty of experienced tacticians out there or technicians that are furiously doing stuff 
whether it's a major gift field officer using that term or an annual giving person, and they raise money. But if they don't have the right paradigm as they do it, they're going to raise a fraction of what's really possible for them. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in terms of what the principles does is that it looks at the whole fundraising paradigm in a completely different way. We don't talk about categories of giving. We're focused on the way donors give instead of that. So, you know, the research has been done. I think uh, Russell James, who's at, at, at Texas Tech, has done this over the past five years. And I don't even use the term major gifts anymore, even though most of my career was focused in that area. Because this research has been shown, and this is what we do at the Eight Principles, that when you build a pathway for donors to become closer to you over time, regardless of how they're coming to you or what they give you, at least in the beginning, the, the trigger, the lever that causes the entire program to really accelerate big gifts right down to the smallest gifts is when a core group of your supporters, investors, donors, whatever you want to call them, have made at least one gift of an asset, not out of income. And you see, that has nothing to do with the size. I mean, you could have an asset gift, which could be $1,000, $1,500. So Larry, let me stop you right there. Talk a little bit about the difference between a, an income gift and an asset gift. What kind of things are you thinking about when you're saying an asset gift? Well, you know, when I used to, when, when I was working in, in higher ed, one of my jobs at one point was to go around and, and solicit board members. And I was soliciting them every year. Well, that's a cash gift. And when I would go see uh, Jamie as a board member, and I said, Jamie, uh, you know, I'm here to, uh, to solicit your annual fund gift, and, and we're thinking 20000 Well, he got his checkbook out of his jacket and wrote me a check for 20000 That is a cash gift. It came out of a cash account. Uh, I looked at the check. I knew it came out of a cash account. And so he's giving out of his income as opposed to when a donor steps up and assigns you a small $5,000 IRA or mutual fund they no, no longer have a use for. That actually demonstrates a higher level of emotional commitment on the part of the donor. So that what happens, I mean, it's really phenomenal the way it works, is that the whole, once you have a core sort of critical mass of these people, the whole program really accelerates. And then here's the other great thing. It almost, it becomes almost impervious to economic downturns. You become recession-proof, bulletproof. It's fascinating. And so that's, that's what we, and it all starts from thinking differently, not doing differently. The doing comes later after you figure out what's really going on. Right, because you're still, you know, a, as a fundraiser, you're still making an ask of a donor. You're still building the relationship. It's, it's not about doing those things differently. I, I like what you're talking about here. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you know Lisa Wolf over at Westfall Gold or not, but I had her on the show a few weeks ago, and she said something similar. She said, one of the biggest challenges that they see, particularly in high net worth giving, is that nonprofit organizations are still primarily asking for cash gifts, but about 95% of the wealth in this country is held in non-cash assets. So it makes so much sense for this to be where you're focusing. I feel almost stupid saying that out loud because it seems, again, so simple, but I think most organizations just don't even think about it in that way. Well, and I want to stress, uh, Andrew, this is not about just, quote, hitting up the top 1%, unquote. 
Hmm. All right. This is about, this is about building relationships with all levels of people. And I, I go back to the, to the amount of the gift if it, uh, as it's an asset gift is not the critical factor. It's how it's given. You can have, for instance, let's go back to the guy that I talked about who wrote me a check for 20,000. He could write me that every every, every year, but his commitment was lower than if he had handed over an asset lower or higher because he's giving something out of something he's held back that he's holding for some future use, not what his current cash position is. And so that's why, for instance, if you're overly dependent on cash gifts, the minute the economy goes south and worse, if you're dependent on these transactional things, buying overpriced bottles of wine and overpriced weekends at at somebody's donated condo, those things evaporate because they're all discretional income. And I don't care how wealthy you are, when you see your stock portfolio going down, how many $2,000 bottles of wine are you going to buy? <laughs> For sure. No. It's interesting you say that. I, I tell my clients very frequently that, you know, when, when all we're doing is asking for cash gifts, we're really creating a, a framework where our organization is living, literally living paycheck to paycheck. Um, oh, really scary. Absolutely. So that, so it's, it's changing that mind. It's not about the amount. It's not about hitting the big guys or discovering the big guys. It's about developing a paradigm where you are building a pathway for all your donors at all levels to get closer and closer and closer to you. And if your programs are designed well and they're being executed properly, nature will take over. You don't have to create it or you don't have to, you know, force people or trick people or, you know, do some, you know, incantation over them. It just happens. And here's the other thing. If you're doing this right, the end of the year frenetic rush ceases to be a frenetic rush. You already know what you're going to be getting. You already know that. I mean, you'll get the unexpected gift coming through the transom, but that's, as you and I both know, that's the exception, not the rule. So that's fascinating to me because so many organizations, I was looking at a file recently and the organization was basically barely breaking even until about mid-November. Not, not that they would call it this, but they didn't start to see profit until really the last 45 days of the year. Yeah, which, excess revenues, they call it in the nonprofit. Yeah, it scares me to death because, you know, to your point, one, one major failure somewhere in an organization or a program and all of a sudden they're looking at going under because they don't have the cash flow to manage it. So, so really what I hear you saying is this, this kind of approach helps you even out those, those revenue spikes so that you've got more consistent revenue month over month. Is that, is that it? That's right. You're, you're weaning yourself away from these occasional things that are driven by something than other than the mission of your organization or your outreach. Okay. I love that. So I want to go back to something you said. You talked about Dr. Russell James. You talked about his research. But I feel like you've told me in an offline conversation before that, that his research found something to the effect of organizations that follow the, the eight principles methodology and how, you, how you've designed this training. It was some astronomical number, like they raised four times as much money than if they yeah. didn't or something like that. Yeah, he looked at 200,000 organizations and he looked at this trigger that I talked about. And when that occurred, you could see gains of up over 400%. Now, you know, before I actually developed the program itself and I was doing face-to-face consulting and working with organizations, I had a couple of situations where I used this approach and they had 600% in less than a year. Wow. Now that's exceptional because <laughs> they were so bad that they became so good so quickly. But, uh, and then actually it was the performance of that, that, uh, that kind of, and the, and the fallout after 
that led me to think about building this this training platform because what happens is you know i i do what's called outside intervention i mean you you know you've worked in a consultancy you know how that works you come in you charge a nice fee you do some good work they do have good results and you go away well guess what six eight nine months twelve months later they're back doing the same old stuff and so how do you break that cycle well, having a training platform like this is one way to do that. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So I want to shift gears a little bit um, because I know you've got, you're going to be opening your cart for the first time uh, in 2020 for your online learning platform, uh, the Oracle League. Tell us a little bit about uh, what the Oracle League is and why you know, fundraisers, CEOs, and, and board members should, should want to be a part of it. Well, we're pretty proud of it. For those of you who know Seth Godin, it's built on the model of his marketing uh, seminar. When I first saw that, I was pretty impressed with the way it set it up. So it's an interactive online program. And what does that mean? It means that it's a series of custom, high-quality teaching videos with accompanying exercises and worksheets and quizzes. Uh, there are podcasts that are a part of this as well uh, that work you through the eight principles over time. And then laid into that is an online uh, community where everyone in the cohort, it's live, it's always live, can go ahead and, and contribute what their ideas, their contributions, their understanding, their questions. And I moderate it continually so that it's an ongoing online platform. And it's, it, it runs for, what, 16 weeks, I think. We open up the entire platform, and we encourage you to move from, you know, the first module through the ninth, because it is sequential in the way you learn. Uh, but then you can sort of pick it up whenever you want to pick it up. The, uh, the online platform is always, is always there, so you don't have to be there on a business day or business hours to get contributions. Uh, so that's the way we've set, set it up. So everyone gets a chance to, to hear other people's concerns, questions, and, and, and accomplishments at the same time that they're working as well. And then I'm there to moderate it and answer questions that people might have. Um, we're pretty impressed with the learning materials themselves. They are very high quality. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been a, a member of a mastermind that you lead, and, and I can say, you know, if it's anything like that, the experience should be pretty phenomenal for people because I found a lot of value there myself. I believe that you told me that you've got uh, two, two special bonuses for folks that sign up after hearing this podcast. Is that right? Sure. I'd be delighted. And uh, they are as follows. Those of you who'd like um, a, a complimentary consultation, uh, audio over the phone. 15, 20 minutes, I'll be glad to do it. And then uh, if you'd like, if you'd so desire, we'll send you an inscribed copy of the book itself, which I like to say the book that started it all. That's awesome. And just for folks who might be weary, that 15 to 20 minute conversation, that's not a sales pitch, right, Larry? Oh, no. I'm there to listen and then offer my response to it. Awesome. Absolutely not. I'm not selling anything. Awesome. That's hugely valuable. So, so tell me this. I know you got to go pretty quickly, but what's the, what's the Oracle League website? It's simply theoracleleague.com. If you're going to be wanting to uh, use the, uh, the special, uh, the special uh, uh, incentives, it would be a similar website, theoracleleagueoffer.com. Theoracleleagueoffer.com. And, <laughs> and tell us again, when, when is the uh, Oracle League cart opening up this year? Uh, opens on the, uh, I think, what is it, the 25th of January, and it runs through February 15th. 25th of January through February 15th, theoracleleagueoffer.com, right? 
You're right. And league is spelled E L E A G U E, right? League.com. <laughs> I'm a terrible scholar. Larry, if somebody wants to get in touch with you uh, outside of signing up for the Oracle League, but they have a question or want to learn more, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, you can send it an, an email to me directly. Uh, I read my own email, and it's simply Larry, that's L-A-R-R-Y, at the8principles.com, and it's all spelled out, the word the, T-H-E, the word eight, E-I-G-H-T, and the word principles, P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E-S, L-E-S.com. Awesome. Hey, Larry, thanks for your time today. Thanks for telling us a little bit about the eight principles uh, and for sharing about the Oracle League. Really appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.